Well, good morning. Uh, I am Matt Kerber, a pastor here at the church. We have our children dismissed for Children's Church, and as Joe uh, gave us a sneak peek, they're going to be learning about dealing with their fears. So uh, maybe I kind of wish I could sneak in as well and listen. Uh, I do fear many things. I don't feel fear public speaking as much as I used to. Um, but I do have sometimes the nightmare of being before people expected to say something and not knowing what, what I'm supposed to say. That is a fear. Uh, I'm not, uh, fortunately, I have some idea of what I'm going to say now. Um, but I do always have some uh, prevailing sense that, uh, especially as, we're, as I'm praying, preparing to move to the sermon, uh, that uh, I really need God to show up. And I'm thankful that you also can pray for me as we come together before God's Word eager, eager to hear it, and hoping, expecting, and longing for God to show himself for us. We have been working through this book, the letter of James, uh, throughout the year since, I, I believe, late September, and today brings it to a close, our final sermon in James. The next couple of weeks, we're going to lead up towards Easter by looking at some passages of the Bible that talk about the importance of of the resurrection. We'll be thinking about why the resurrection is such a big deal in our lives. On one hand, it'll be sort of a uh, Christianity 101, and if you have people in your life that have been saying, boy, I really have been meaning to go to church, this could be a great time to invite them. We'll be talking about really entry-level things, and yet uh, you'll also recognize, I believe, that sometimes the basic thing isn't always basic, that re returning to the main idea can have tremendous uh, power in our own life and our own growth and spirituality. So we'll pray towards that end together. Uh, I'm going to read this passage from James 5, and then we'll affirm together it's God's word. James 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you, uh, celebrating the end of our sermon series in, in James, you have a two-sided handout this week. One side is a, a summary and outline of what I, I think I will say today. And the other side is an uh, outline of the passage broken down with notes and uh, sort of a showing what we think the structure might be. And I believe that as we move to the end of James, James is uh, drawing his message to a close with sort of two points of emphasis. The one is sort of small, and the second is bigger. The first one is he wants people to think about their own spiritual life, what's going on in their lives. 
Is it real for you? And secondly, he wants to know how are you relating to each other? He wants to send his people off with these two points. I think it's a fitting conclusion. We, as we've looked at the book of James, we've made this observation throughout. James is very practical. In fact, the working title for the whole series in the book has been Wisdom for Life from the book of James. And, and many people, as they read James, say James is so concerned about the application of your faith to your life. He presses into the details of how people live. And he's and sometimes very, just very direct. We see that today. What do you do when you're cheerful? What do you do when you're sad? What do you do when you're sick? What about sin and struggles with sin? What about spiritual wandering? That's been the characterization throughout. And I've made the argument that the way James is working is he thinks of our spiritual growth in practical terms. And he says, when you apply these things, it's going to highlight your need. And it's going to bring you to the, the central point of the Christian life, which is humility before God, dependence on God. But James teaches us that by throwing us into the fire of the Christian life. Go do it, he says. And there, in the midst of the doing, we see our great need, and we're led to cry out to God's, God's great power. Well, the first thing, I think, this first closing thought is a, uh, just speak a brief word about it before we see the bigger idea, and that is a, the, the implications of faith for our personal spirituality. The first two questions are questions that speak to yourself and have an answer for something you do. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? We could say those are sort of the two extreme experiences of your life. If you were to, to sort of chart uh, maybe from your diary or a journal or even just reading your, your, your emails over the past six months, you might notice some ups and downs. Uh, life can feel like a roller coaster, right? And you would probably think there were some times where I was really suffering, the sort of downward slope of that curve and, and points where I was really cheerful. You probably saw both in different times, sometimes within the same day or, or the same short period of time. We can feel both of those things. James wants the, the, the cycle of your life to be embedded with spiritual truth and practice and reality. And I think it leads us to just a very practical question to ask, ask as we close this letter. Is the spiritual life, the Christian life, true for you? One of the ways we'd find out is to say, are you praying when you suffer? Are you singing praise to God when you're cheerful? It's probably the most practical application to the real Christian life. Do we connect with God at the points of our highs and our lows? I want you to ask, think for a moment of your life. I, I would confess it's easier for me to connect at the low than the high. Seems strange, doesn't it? When I'm suffering, and, and I think James just invites us the broadest range of, of application here. When I'm suffering, I remember God, and I encounter my weakness, my inability, and I think, God, I need you to help me. Often, God will help me, and then a little while later, I can be cheerful. God helped me. That was great. I easily forget. I can begin to think that cheerful is the place for me to, to do what I want in my space. But James reminds us that's the place of singing responsive prayers to God. You praise God when things go well. Again, let me just ask you, as we close this letter, James is so practical. Could you do a practical inventory of your life? Is it, I think he's asking this question, is it real for you? Some of you perhaps have been sitting here for quite some time and you came because your roommate encouraged you to come uh, or perhaps you've, you've come because your parents have told you to come 
or you've come to please your, your spouse or a friend or a co-worker. James provokes you a little bit here. He provokes me. Is it real for you? Have you, you owned this yourself? Have you learned to pray? Have you learned to praise? Does it enter in with what you're doing? It's an urgent question in some ways. You may sit here actually for 18 years of your life. Part of your time with people like Joe and Patty and Children's Church. Part of your time here sitting and listening. But is it real for you? Or are you just going through the motions, leaning on the spirituality of someone else? Or do you connect with God in the highs and the lows? It's an important question for us to ask. And I ask you to think it, ask it to yourself and think carefully about where you are. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot that's important here. There is a real necessary spiritual component that is personal that we can only take for ourselves. But the point that James really makes in this closing section is something a little different. He does want to press home this real spiritual, personal vitality, but the emphasis of this closing section is on the way that our spirituality is infused with other people, the way it connects with people around us. Because it's so important that we are personal, for a long time, American Christians have emphasized the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus. It has to be that. But the thing that James emphasizes here is that personal relationship isn't enough. It's essential, but it's not enough. Our spirituality is necessarily communal. When we look at the, the next couple of questions, the, the lead-in after you know, suffering, pray, uh, 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 cheerful praise, the next question invites a response that is something you don't do for yourself. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Is anyone among you sick? Now, again, if we were following the pattern, we might expect James to say here, pray, we could do that. We could say, take vitamin C, uh, eat chicken noodle soup, uh, get a lot of rest. Those are really good things to do when you're sick. But interestingly enough, James uses this as a launching point to think about all the places in our life where we need others. And so we ask another question today, is your spirituality communal that's a theme of James and it's what he drives home at the end we need each other you don't have enough on your own there's three ways that he does it here the first is the first question is anyone among you sick and then the next two aren't exactly questions they're a little bit of a variation this is where looking at you know if, you, if you're curious to look on the back of the sermon outline um, we see in verse 14, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, the second part of verse 15, he speaks of a situation where we may have committed sin. What do you do when you're struggling with sin? And just like sickness, the answer is you need other people. Third and finally, we see the way in which we need each other because we are spiritual wanderers. And the very definition of wandering is you might not know you're wandering you need other people. We need other people. God uses us in the lives of others. Physical sickness, struggles with sin, spiritual wandering. Those are the three things we're going to look at. How we need and how we are used in the lives of others in these places. So first of all, sickness. The experience of being sick often reminds you of how much you need other people. You might be reluctant to go to the hospital, but when you go, you're essentially confessing, I can't fix this on my own. 
I remember a number of years ago, Chrissy and I were young parents, and the, the very first experience we had, maybe the only experience we had of being deathly ill at the same time with children was frightening. We had two kids, they, they were probably two and one or something like that, and we got the flu so bad we, we could not stand. We were laying in bed. And somehow we got our neighbor to come over to the house. We didn't know her that well. And she like took our kids for a walk and hung out with them for a little bit. We were so thankful for, for good neighborly care. But it was a powerful reminder that we actually couldn't make our life work on our own in the midst of our sickness. God can use sickness that way to remind us how much we need other people. We need a doctor. We need care from others. We need people to help us in our sickness. That's the point James makes here. He, he, he entreats us, I'm sure, to, if he had uh, good doctors, he would say, call them. But the first thing he does is he says, you need other people, and he, invite, he, he urges the people who are sick to call the elders of the church to come and to pray. The big thing we want to see here is that when you're sick, John, uh, James says, you need other people. You need the church around you when you're sick. And we, we see this in part when a pastor is called to go to the hospital to visit someone who's sick. Uh, we do that, and you are always welcome uh, to do that. If you're sick, please urge us. But the picture is actually a little broader. It's the elders, plural. There's sometimes necessary for uh, more than just one uh, person to minister to us in the midst of our sickness. Now, before we get to this wonderful application, there are a couple uh, technical questions along the way. It's a little bit of a challenging passage. What, what does it mean when James says to anoint them, uh, anoint them with oil? Uh, we see here, uh, uh, the elders will come and uh, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, verse 14. If you grew up Roman Catholic, um, you would know that this is the basis for a sacrament in the Catholic Church called extreme unction. If a person's going to die, the priest will come, anoint them with oil, they'll confess, sins will be forgiven, and something important will happen at that point in time. And I, I don't know enough about extreme unction to say anything more. Now, uh, certainly it's good for, uh, to confess sins uh, uh, if you think you're going to die, but it's important to see in the passage it's actually not that happening here. First of all, the assumption is the person's not going to die, but they're going to live. And also, the emphasis, while it's on the prayer of a church leader, the elders, when it comes to confession, the confession is made one to another, that we are called to confess one to another. It's certainly wise to confess to a religious leader, but that's not necessarily the case. More importantly, the emphasis is on the prayer and not on the oil. We may ask why why are they anointing with oil? There's several possibilities. Uh, uh, one of them is that often the idea of anointing with oil is a symbolic action that shows that we belong God, to God and are set apart for his purpose. This was done of uh, leaders in the Old Testament. They were called the anointed ones. And Jesus is the anointed one par excellence. He is the, the christened one or the Christos, the Christ. Now, that's possible here. In the New Testament, Paul says that we are all anointed with the Holy Spirit. And perhaps what he has in mind here is a symbolic action that reminds the sick person that God has called you as child. You belong to him, and the Spirit is upon you. It's possible, but there's another thing that I think is more likely. One of the things we miss, because we, we live in a, a different time and an age, is that in the first century, 
olive oil, oil, which is the oil, olive oil was referenced here, was often used as a medicinal uh, component. And it's referenced this way many times in the Bible. In fact, the actual Greek word used here to anoint them is always used in the Bible, as far as I could see, with the application of oil in a medical setting. It, for instance, if you're familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, uh, afterwards, the Good Samaritan cares for a person who was hurt in the side of the road, and he uses oil to do it. When, whenever Jesus speaks of a person who's fasting, and he says, I do, you don't want to make such a big deal about your fasting. In fact, take care of your physical appearance so people don't even know. He says, wash your face and anoint yourself with oil. Not so you stand out, but so that you look healthy. In the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when, when, uh, when Daniel was fasting and showing how serious he was about commitment to God, he, he wouldn't anoint himself and he wouldn't eat certain foods. It was a, uh, clearly, in that sense, a, a medical reference or a health care reference. So it could be, and I think this is probably, he's simply saying, bring the ordinary first century care to alleviate someone in their time of need. Again, we, we see two possibilities. I lean towards the second. But we, we, either way, the emphasis is on the prayer. There's nothing magical in the oil. It's the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, this is also a challenge. There are those in, in the church today um, who would say that anytime you pray, God will heal, heal you if you pray in faith. Have you heard that before? It's an attractive teaching. We, we often associate this with the kind of teaching we call the health and wealth or prosperity gospel, and you could fill auditoriums with this sort of a teaching. The problem is it misses the underlying teaching of James as well as the rest of the Bible. You remember James started his letter by saying, many of you are going to face trials. Rejoice, because when you endure, God will teach you to be steadfast. The starting assumption of James is that we don't always get healed. The New Testament is full of stories of people that didn't get healed. The Apostle Paul, who probably has more healings associated with him than any other follower of Christ, at many points referenced people that were his friends who got sick and died. Paul couldn't heal them. Yes, God can work through prayers. He is the God who made all things, and he can choose to heal James is not intending us to think that it will always happen. As attractive as that can seem, it's disastrous in the spiritual life of the church. When we believe the reason I'm not healed is because I don't have enough faith, we add insult to injury. My experience has been nearly every Christian I've met that has a chronic illness at some point has had someone heap that shame upon them. If only you had faith, you would be healed. James says the opposite. He says, friends, rejoice in your trials because God will teach you to be steadfast. He will meet you. And yes, we pray for healing and God's wisdom he will provide. But not all the time. Not when we want. It's here that we're driven to main, Paul, uh, James's main theme that we would be humble before God. Well, those are two challenges. The takeaway of this, is this passage, like the takeaway of all of these points, though, is a remarkable one. God actually does work through people. But we don't control when it happens. It's not automatic. But God does choose to respond to people, to bring his power at work in the world. 
Look at the remarkable way that he does it. We, we saw all of the qualifications, but verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now that tells us two important things. First of all, it's God who's raising him up. But secondly, God so much chooses to use us in his work that he could even say the prayer of faith will save him. It's not your power, we all know that. You don't have that power in yourself apart from God, but God has that power. He invites you to pray and he chooses to respond to our prayers in the lives of those around us. We need each other. But then that point is driven home in the second one as well. We see, first of all, sickness. Secondly, he he recognizes that intertwined with physical sickness is spiritual sickness. That James is not suggesting that we are sick because we sin necessarily. It could be. We can imagine many situations where the, the sickness and the physical ailments in our life are actually a result of something we're doing morally, spiritually. It can't happen. We are one body and mind, but often it doesn't. James simply says, in this situation, we recognize another way in which we are frail and weak, and those things can be intertwined. And so he says a second situation here, the first is sickness, the second is this, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, it's a flat-out rejection of the belief that you remain unhealed because you've sinned. It says the exact opposite here. They could be intertwined together, but he speaks of a, a healing and a forgiveness. Well, what we want to draw from this passage, however, is the importance, the importance of each other in the midst of our spiritual weakness, in the midst of our struggles with sin. Again, we heard in the beginning the importance of a, a, a self-integration that we learn and think and do, that we become people that are consistent within ourselves. But friends, none of us are sufficient for the task. And often we encounter this not only in our physical weakness, but in our spiritual weakness. I know in my own life, personally, the times where I've seen my need for others has most often showed up in the midst of my struggle with sin. God does not intend us to figure it out on our own. One of the greatest dangers we face as any church, we gather together, we sit in this setting, and we we do put on our Sunday best, and we might do the modern-day equivalent of anointing our head with oil and looking good and coming to church, and we sit next to each other and look like people that have it together. And every Sunday, you crawl into church or slide into church and sit down and and maybe you put on the best face and you sit down next to someone doing exactly the same thing and you both think, why am I the only one here that doesn't have it together? That easily becomes how we operate. James tells us this, he says, if you are struggling with sin, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed God's work of healing in our life comes as we involve each other in the process. If if you're struggling to do this, I invite you to start small. Start with a a trusted friend. Start with a leader in the church. If there's a battle you're struggling with in your life and you can't get past it, maybe it's because God never intended you to get past it on your own. It's the reason why we need support groups, why we need ministries 
like Teen Challenge, not just for teenagers, but for men in the local chapter, but men and women struggling with chemical addiction. We need the help of each other. In our church, we have support groups for men and women struggling with sexual sin because you will not beat it on your own if you have ingrained patterns. Confess your sin to one another and pray for one another. It's here in the midst of our struggles that we help each other. And our hope as a church is that as we gather in all of our settings, our, our community groups, our smaller groups, our discipleship relationships, that we increasingly become people transparent enough, willing to risk with those we trust the confession of sin so that we really can pray for each other and help each other. You weren't meant to do it on, on your own. Years ago, Chrissy and I went to a conference on marriage and they said this powerful thing I'll never forget. Your marriage is never meant to be a big enough group for all your problems. You need the church. So friends, can confess in your weakness and your sickness and your sin and the prayers of others are powerful. How powerful? Well, James tells us, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Your brothers and sisters around you are righteous in Christ. They have been joined to Christ through faith. They are sons of God. God has put the Holy Spirit in them that teaches them to pray. And God desires to use their prayers for you. You need it. God has given you what you need in your brother or sister next to you. How powerful? Well, James uses a story from the, the old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He speaks of Elijah. Elijah, he said, was the great prophet. He fought the prophets of, of Baal and called down fire from heaven. But he tells a story of how God used Elijah to discipline a rebellious king through a famine on the land. How did it happen? Elijah prayed. Elijah prayed. He prayed what God wanted him to pray. He was a prophet, and God knew it wasn't as if Elijah was sort of an, you know, a, a, a weatherman who just was twisting things at his own, to his own desires and whims. You know, I'm gonna, you know, uh, I've got a futures in the grain market from Assyria, and uh, boy, a famine is gonna really boost my portfolio. Um, that's ridiculous. I just thought of that in the moment. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. He was praying God's will, but God chose to use him. That's the point. God chose to use him. That's the point that James wants us to make. Now, we might be tempted to say, well, if God was going to do it, he would have done it anyway, whether we pray or not. In a sense, that could be true, but that's not what James tells us here. He says God chooses to use others to do it. God's intention, his plan, is to use your prayers for someone else that they would be healed, that they would be experiencing the healing grace of the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. We need each other, and we are empowered and equipped to do it. What amazing good news this is. Third and finally, we are prone to wander, aren't we? That's what James says here. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. Now, James is at it again. He is so intent on showing us the power we have as being a channel of God's grace that he actually says, 
you will save him, his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. Now, if we step back for a second and think about what we know of theology, we know that none of us can actually save someone in the sense that we would be the reason they're forgiven. This is a manner of speaking, right? James is practical. He's a pastor. He wants to gather. He wants to get your attention. And he says, God will use you in this. He's not suggesting for a moment that anyone in this congregation is going to offer themselves as a sacrifice, a righteous sacrifice for sin so that someone else can be forgiven. He's not suggesting that you have in yourself the ability to cover over a multitude of sins. There is one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not taking applications for the job. But his intention is to work through you in the life of someone else. Now, again, we could stand back at a, a, you know, from a mile away and look at this and say, well, if God had determined to do this from all eternity, won't he do it whether I pray or not? Won't he do it whether I get involved or not? Won't he, won't he save their soul from death and cover over their sins whether I try to bring them back or not? And James would say you're asking the wrong question because God determined to use you. God is determined to work through you. That is his plan. I've had the privilege over the years to sit under the, the preaching of uh, Pastor Bill Glaze at Bethany Baptist Church. Occasionally I listen to sermons and he has a thing he likes to say to his church when they're talking about the mission of the church in the world or the witness in the community. The people know it and they know how to respond. He'll say to them, this is God's plan A. What is plan B? And everyone in the congregation knows to say, there is no plan B. <laughs> that's, that's the point. Yes, God is working, but the means he's working is through you. Your prayers are powerful and effective because God is powerful. He doesn't lie. And don't, don't get distracted thinking of your own weakness. We're weak. We are weak. But God chooses to reveal his power through you as you pray. Friends, in your sickness and physical weakness, would you pray for one another? In your struggles with sin, would you lean on others and ask for help? But would you recognize your great need in your wanderings? We are all, are we not, prone to wander? We do church the way we do church, with membership and accountability because we know we're prone to wander. Every time we meet with a new member, we say something like, you know, what do you think about this church accountability, church structure, where church discipline is what we use for accountability? How do, what do you think about that? And most of the time, when people are, understand what we're talking about, they'll say, boy, I need it. That's what I say. Boy, I need it. I'm prone to wander. And friends, those around us are prone to wander, and God is determined to use us close this sermon and in some ways this series with just a really again practical word in the spirit of James practical wisdom how is God intending to use you how might God be using you and the lives of people around you that have wandered your prayers are powerful great power as they're working and God said his means for recovering one who has wandered is his church. Church membership and accountability means it doesn't mean you can't leave. And 
we often say, if someone wants to leave, they can go. This isn't Egypt. I'm not Pharaoh. Have you ever heard that saying before? When you want to go, you can go. It's not, we're not talking about manipulating people, but you have friends who have wandered. I'm just being really practical here. And some, some people who are members of our church said this isn't the best church and they go somewhere else and we send them with a blessing. I'm not talking about that. People move, people uh, commit other places for a variety of reasons, but some of your friends have wandered, haven't they? People who've made public commitments, who've stood with us and said, I believe in Jesus, they've wandered and they're Maybe they're just overly busy or maybe sin has caught a hold of them. Maybe they've been disappointed in the church or disappointed in themselves. God promises that he has power available to us as we reach out in love. Great power in the working of our prayers. Great power in the witness of his people. Friends, we have young people who've grown up in this church that we have prayed over in their baptism or perhaps even in the moments where they professed faith and they've left home and they're not worshiping anywhere. Would you pray? Would you, would you allow the, the real honest weight? Um, we don't want to sugarcoat the reality of what James is saying. He's saying bringing one back is used by God to save their soul from death. It's a sober, heavy thing, and I, I don't, I don't want to soft pedal it at all. If we had, didn't have the hope of powerful and effective prayer, we would be overcome. If we didn't have the hope that God is at work in our midst. So would you join me in prayer? I'm going to pray specifically for that today, that we would be a people that lean on each other and a people that desire deeply to bring those back to faith that have wandered from it. Let's close in prayer.